Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. When we think about infrastructure, if we think about infrastructure, it's often as the stuff itself. A soaring bridge, a sewer system that spirits away waste, the electrical grid. But in a new book, engineering professor Deb Chatra argues that these hard systems are actually a manifestation of collective cooperation and of care. By freeing us from survival tasks, infrastructure makes those who can access it more free. But our infrastructure can also displace pollution and pain to places we don't see. Our dams and pipes are crumbling all over this country, too. How do we renew and rebuild for the next century? That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. How Infrastructure Works is a new book by Deb Chatra, an engineering professor. It's an attempt to create a whole theory of infrastructure, from the social values that allow it to be imagined to the elegance of a structure through the details of its implementation and maintenance. We all know from driving on our roads around the Bay Area and from the yearly reports that the country's civil engineers put out that our infrastructure is falling apart in many places. For one, it's old. Two, all levels of government have deferred maintenance on it. And three, The infrastructure was built for a world that has changed and will continue to do so because of global warming. Yet this book is in the category of love letter in the way a naturalist book is a love letter to nature. But Chatra's message is more complex as we enter the uncertain middle age of the great infrastructural takeoff that fossil fuels enabled. She makes the case that infrastructure is deeply important, that it is the very linchpin of a future that is not dystopian, and also that we need to rethink the kinds of infrastructure we build, and the values we embody in it. Chatra joins us this morning. Thanks so much for coming on, Deb. I'm so happy to be here today, Alexis. So just for for people who don't think about it as often as you do, what makes infrastructure infrastructure? Like, how do you define it? Well, there are many academic papers that go into length, but for (laughs) our purposes, I like to think of it as um, I specifically focused on technological systems. You said I'm an engineering professor. So we're not thinking about sort of money or the legal system or healthcare, any of those things. Mm-hmm. But the thing that these systems, so sewage, water, electricity, transportation, telecommunications, have in common with things like money and the legal system in terms of being infrastructure is that they're the things that we just take for granted as mm-hmm. being there when we start something new. So, you know, I, you know, I teach engineering students, and they don't think about is there going to be electricity to run the thing that they're doing. Just like if you're starting a business, you know that there's a legal system and a monetary system in place. Mm-hmm. So it's all the things that we take for granted, 
And as we're all finding out, we only take it for granted when it works well. Yeah. I love that. I mean, just rough and ready definition. It's the stuff you don't think about. (laughs) Yeah. Um, uh, You grew up around infrastructure, noticing it in perhaps ways that not every kid does. Like, why do you think that is? (laughs) Uh, I was a a somewhat nerdy child, which was part of it. Um, But I was really helped by two things. So one is my parents were immigrants to Canada from India. And they came at the end of the the, um, the 1960s. I was born at the start of the 70s. And it was really a moment of deep care for building out new infrastructural systems in Canada. Mm-hmm. And my father, in fact, worked for the public power utility. So I had sort of proximity to some of these things, including my local, local nuclear power plant. But my nuclear power plant had a visitor center. It was very deliberately designed <laughs> to be open, you know, for people to come and visit. But the other piece of it, I said they emigrated from India, was spending time in India. And, you know, you said the rough and ready definition of infrastructure is all the stuff we don't think about. That's also true of culture, right? It's all Mm. the things we do and we don't think about it. So when my family went home, went to India to visit um, my parent family and stay there, I had very different infrastructural systems than I did in Canada. So, you know, typically we would have water for an hour a day um, in the morning and an hour in the evening. We would pretty much expect to have brownouts in the afternoon. So all of those things made the sort of infrastructure that I took for granted as a small child growing up in Canada visible in a way that it would not otherwise have been if I'd only seen one system or the other. Well, and I think you also read the gendered nature of the labor that infrastructure was doing for you in a, in a really interesting way, too, right? Because you were looking at this world and saying, oh, man, if this water doesn't just come on when I turn the tap, then someone's going to do that. And in many places, that task has fallen to him. Yeah, pretty much, you know, globally. I have a colleague, Ben Linder, who works in... Um, uh, who works in the Global South doing sort of design um, and appropriate technology. And I remember him saying to me, like, yeah, globally, most people, particularly women, spend every day getting fuel for cooking. And it's mm-hmm. like it's just part of your daily life. And the realization, of course, that, you know, I sort of say I'm a middle-aged brown woman and pretty much everyone on the planet or the large majority of people on the planet who look like me, that's what their day is, getting fuel for cooking and getting clean water for their families. Mm -hmm. And it's a thing that I literally never spend, you know, more than a few minutes thinking about every day. It's just Mm -hmm. those things are just on tap for me. Um, And that really drove home the idea that how much infrastructure replaces gendered labor. Yeah. And that feeling, I mean, I guess I think I want to call it gratitude, maybe. Um, It intersects also with these concepts of sort of elegance and technical efficiency and, you know, what you call the charismatic megastructure. These things that I, you know, associate more with kind of like awe and the sublime and and things like that. Um, So one of the ways in which I really think about this is that my individual agency, my ability to basically decide what I want to do on a daily basis and to do things like write a book or, you know, hang out with my friends, um, are all made possible by the presence of these collective systems. So, um, So that's really kind of where the intersection comes into play, because that's true when it's just like, oh, I'm just going to turn the tap to get water and not have to worry about bringing the water to my house. And it's just as true when we see something like a giant megastructure, which is very clearly a collective project and for collective use. So that really is at the very small, very quotidian level, that really is the intersection with these charismatic Mm -hmm. megastructures. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the stories that's embedded in this book is 
Deb Chatro wandering around the world, seeing infrastructure, going to visit it. Um, and I was wanting you to give us kind of some insight into like, how does one orient oneself to seeing the infrastructure that's around? Like when you go to a new place and you start looking around, you know, San Francisco or whatever, a place, how do you start seeing the stuff that other people don't? Um, for First of all, a lot, I mean, it's just, there, right? Like, it's actually, there's probably very few moments in our lives, if you live in San Francisco or here in the Northeast, that there isn't some sort of node or interface to an infrastructural system, and often many, in your eyeline at any moment, right? That could be power switches or outlets, that could be lights, that could be looking at the window and seeing a road that's, you know, water. And so walking down the street, very commonly, I will, I will, People, people who have walked down the street with me will notice that I will, like, stop and look at small things. <laughs> um, and that might be a marker in the ground. That might be signage. Um, I'm, I'm, of course, like many of us, I notice when cell phone towers are disguised as trees. Oh, yes. I love right? that line in the book, right? The um, only towers you see are the ones that are, like, <laughs> fake trees. Yeah. Um, but, but broadly, and, uh, humans tend to... We're really good at not seeing things that either we see all the time or that we don't really know what they're for, right? We can just, you know, kind of gloss over them. And so a huge amount of it is just once I kind of know how things work and I know that they're there, then I see them in the world. And um, the, the, the naturalist, Helen McDonald, who's a friend of mine, talks about the green blur, that if you haven't looked closely at the natural environment you will tend to see, you know, a monocult like a a a, um, a yeah. golf course that's just like grass will look not that different from a wildflower meadow, right? That is both just kind of green and vaguely grassy. <laughs> but once you kind of know something about the flowers or the plants in the meadow, then it goes from being a green blur to this sort of deep specificity. Then you don't just see it as a green blur anymore. And I I think that by virtue of that noticing, right, that sustained attention, the gray blur of our built environment, the gray blur of our infrastructure is no longer that. Now it's more like a wildfire, that wildflower meadow to me. And I hope to the, the people who are walking down the street with me when I stop and look at things. Um, and now I hope the people who read um, the book and other writings. I love this. You see it everywhere. And sometimes those things um, are, are things we maybe have seen many times. We're going to listen into a sound here, and then we're going to talk about that sound. Maybe you can guess what it is, listeners Ooh. out there. You may have seen it at the ferry building, everyone. Um, right, this is the Solari board, right, That is that used to be a, a common feature of many... Uh, railway depots, right? Yeah, they, um, I, you know, I feel like I, over the course of my lifetime, I feel like I've seen them being replaced with LCD <laughs> displays. And I, I understand why, right? Like, LCD displays can carry all sorts of information. They can carry signage. They're bright. But man, I love Solari boards. And I was oh, yeah. so, so delighted that they installed one in the ferry building. Um, and honestly, one of my favorite things about it is that you can hear when it changes. Mm -hmm. So you can be, you know, like wandering around the ferry building and getting a snack and, and then you'll hear the salary board and it's like, oh, something has changed. Now I need to pay attention. 
And it's just, I find that so lovely, and I just love the sound. And, oh, I do, too. Yeah. Yeah, like little, the footsteps of infrastructure. Absolutely. <laughs> I yeah. mean, the other thing is, too, right, it's tied into all these systems that are required to bring together, like the informational networks that let you know when something's coming, the resilience of the ferries, you know, that they provide for our, our land transport. It is tied to all these other systems, right? Yeah, and that's that is broadly true of infrastructure in general, right? That every system is dependent on and tied to every other system, pretty much. And electricity is kind of the most obvious one, right? That water pumps don't work without electricity. Transportation is another obvious one. But to a really, you know, to a very high degree, all of these networks, all of these utilities that we just take for granted make all the other ones work, that mm-hmm. they're really kind of um, deeply intersecting, deeply entangled. And of course, you know, we understand that deeply when when things fail or, um, you know, actually here, one of my first exam- favorite examples is when first responders go out to do things like deal with wildfires, CalDOT needs to get there first to make sure that the roads are mm-hmm. safe to be to be driven on. And I sort of think of them as zeroth responders, which is a very uh. math joke, right? That before the first responders can do their job, you know, these networks need to be in place. Oh, it's such a good point. I mean, another great uh, example is some of the biggest electricity users in California are moving water, right? Of course. It's, so it's always like that, like water, you know, energy nexus, as people talk about it. Yeah. Uh, we are talking about the wonders and delights of infrastructure with Deb Chatra. Her new book, absolutely fantastic, is called How Infrastructure Works Inside the System. Systems that shape our world. Of course, it's uh, now available at a bookstore near you. Came out last week, I believe. We want to hear from you. What's your favorite piece of Bay Area infrastructure? What's the most interesting piece of infrastructure you visited in your life? I'll tell you about the bank's pumping plant. When we get back, you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on all the social things. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more with Deb Chatra. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the wonders, delights, and problems of infrastructure with Deb Chatra. Her new book is How Infrastructure Works Inside the Systems That Shape Our World. We want to hear from you. What's your favorite piece of Bay Area infrastructure? Maybe you visited it. Maybe you admire it from afar. The number is 866-733-6786. You can always email us at forum at kqed.com. 
org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc. Um, Deb, I know that you've been to different pieces uh, of infrastructure. I'll share quickly that one of the strangest ones I've been to is most of our listeners probably know we move a lot of water from north of the Delta, the northern part of uh, California, to south of the Delta into the San Joaquin Valley and Central Valley and uh, down to Los Angeles. And the way we do it is we just put water into the Delta at the top end and then we pump it uh, at the at the bottom end. And so I got to go to the Banks pumping plant, which is the first major set of, of pumps in the Delta. And it's what I find so amazing is it's a fairly nondescript, extremely dry place, kind of uh, out in the middle of nowhere. And yet it is like this crucial linchpin in the life of essentially everyone who lives south um, of the Delta. That, yeah, that I love that. It's like I'm amused that you called it it's so dry. But, yeah. Um, the but yeah, I mean that's you know one of the things about infrastructure is this is this real hiding in plain sight, you know nondescript, you know often sort of engineering element of it. I have to say I was thinking about this and one of my favorite pieces of Bay Area infrastructure are in fact the water temples. There's one in Pulgas. I'm trying to think of where the other one is because they're kind of the opposite of being nondescript. So what they are is when the aqueducts from um, the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir were built to bring water into um, San Francisco at, I think there's a few, and I know this one. Sonol. Sonol, thank you. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And they are these sort of beautiful neoclassical buildings that that are, in fact, you know, architectural or monumental celebrations of bringing the water in, almost the exact opposite of oh, what you just that. described, right? The sort of, va- you know, heavy energy, you know, nondescript, very dry, very engineering facility pumping plant. And meanwhile, there's these beautiful water, te- like literally water temples, right, that um, that celebrate bringing water to the city. Oh, I love that. That's so good. You know, I've never been to one, and I feel slightly guilty now that you've mentioned it. <laughs> they're, they're, they're there for you to visit. Uh, let's bring in uh, a caller, uh, Linda, in Oakland. Welcome, Linda. Hi, how are you? Hey, doing well. Thanks for calling. So I wanted to call because I recently had the opportunity to do a tour of the East Bay Mud Wastewater Treatment Facility. Mm. And I had been trying for a while. The tours open up and they fill up really fast. <laughs> and it's over in Emeryville. Mm-hmm. And it was fascinating. The person who gave the tour talked about the history, about how we used to just pump all of the waste into the bay. And when it when the facility was first built, it had one level of treatment of basically just filtering out and letting things settle out and then go in and then they would pump what was left into the bay. And now they use bacteria to further treat the water to make it really clean. Um, there's a higher level of filtration and they provide recycled water for irrigation in certain places, which I've seen that the purple pipes that run around in certain places um, I've seen that along the uh, the Emeryville Greenway. And also I learned that they have these methane digesters and produce more power than they use and and they sell excess power to the Port of Oakland. And I just was marveling at what it takes to build this this kind of infrastructure and how impressive it is and how important it is for everybody's uh, safety and health. Linda. For the health of the Bay. What an amazing call. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean... Deb, um, Linda is speaking your language because I think for you, right, the municipal water system is not just uh, a great example of technologies stacked on top of each other, but it's also this reflection of this kind of hard-won universal impulse that 
doing things for all of us is better than doing things for some of us. Yeah, I often think of it as kind of the er infrastructure, right? That, um, I mean, we, you know, we think of running water as, you know, it's basically we use a synonymous with civilization for a reason. Um, because, and it, actually, this is a really interesting kind of East Coast, West Coast thing. So I live here in the Northeast, and uh, much of the water that comes to my home in Cambridge and comes to New York City is actually just delivered by gravity. That if you just build a network, you have a reservoir at one end, the city is downhill of it at the other end, it doesn't take very much energy to move it along. And that's why these systems were built in the 19th century, where you didn't have much access to energy, but if you kind of got together to build these systems out then everyone who lived in the city would benefit from having access to clean water. And in fact, you, your family, would benefit from the people around you having access to clean water because it meant that they would be less likely to get sick, and that meant that your family would be less likely to get sick. It is kind of the purest public good. Um, one of the things that I actually kind of find, find fascinating, of course, that California, as Alex, Alexis has already said, so much energy is used to move water around. And that, to me, that's really the difference between sort of 19th century infrastructure where we didn't have access to energy through fossil fuels and 20th century mm. infrastructure where everything kind of got scaled up because we had access to um, fossil fuels in larger and larger amounts, which meant bigger roads and meant building giant pumping stations. Um, it meant building out, you know, transportation networks and the like. Wow. And not to um, jump too far ahead, but I imagine um, that that changing relationship to energy is is going to change what our infrastructure looks like again as we try and move away from fossil fuels into more, in, in your mind, more distributed and renewable resources. Yeah. So this is sort of the moment. I feel like we're on this cusp where we built out this 20th century infrastructure that was based on fossil fuels. So we use more and more energy. We can do bigger and bigger things. Um, importantly, more and more people have access to these systems, right? And one of the way, again, this is a very, I'm an engineering professor, <laughs> but I think of it as like we have bodies and they're in the world. And for us to do things in the world requires energy in the actual literal sense, right? That to move matter, to move, you know, anything around, to produce light, to produce heat, all of these things take energy. And for the last 100 or so years, we've gotten most of that energy via fossil fuels, and we've used it to build out these systems. But of course, now we're seeing the impact of that. And we're seeing it with infrastructure, we're really seeing it in two ways. So one is, these systems are powered, of course, by fossil fuels, that most of our, most of our individual energy usage is mediated through these collective systems. Mm -hmm. The second piece is, and they are powered largely by fossil fuels. And the second piece, again, Alexis, you've already alluded to, is that the impact of putting carbon dioxide and other combustion products in the air is now coming home to roost. Because the other thing that these systems do is that they move resources around the landscape to where our bodies are, um, to where we use them. So that's water, that's you know, networks for telecommunications. Um, and of course, it also, we use them to move our bodies around the landscape. But all of these systems are embedded in this landscape that's now changing because of climate change. Mm. And we see, and this is, this is what we see in the news every day, right? That there's, uh, you know, wildfires or there's droughts or there's flooding. And that, you know, even, even if our infrastructural systems worked beautifully, even if we didn't feel compelled to change them 
to minimize the, to decarbonize them, to minimize the amount of fossil fuels, they are not going to be fit for purpose because they are fundamentally embedded in the landscape and that landscape is changing, right? The next 100 years of what those landscapes are going to look like is going to be very different from the past 100 years. I can read a couple of... Uh favorite infrastructural pieces. And then we're going to go back uh, into this. I mean, uh, G writes in to say, I love the Marin Civic Center. It's an amazing piece of art as a community facility. Amy writes, the Sundial Bridge in Reading is a beautiful structure from all angles and lighting. Walking across the glass bridge decking is a wonder. Here's a, a tougher question. It goes back to what you were, you were just saying around kind of but both renewing and rebuilding infrastructure as well as the maintenance and care um, that are required to, to keep the current infrastructure going. Mike writes, infrastructure spending sadly reflects our unwillingness to prioritize safety and the environment over convenience. In San Mateo County, we just spent $600 million to widen Highway 101, our number one cause of greenhouse gas emissions and the source of air pollution and childhood asthma for adjacent low-income residents. Meanwhile, good luck getting your local municipality to install new bike lanes or pedestrian safety projects. We need to drastically adjust our transportation infrastructure spending priorities. And I think what what this question really gets me or what this comment really gets at for me, Deb, is, you know, the, the kind of we of the collective <laughs> uh, in the abstract is is everyone. Um, but in the implementation phase, in, in trying to actually build out these different things, there are different interest groups who, that are pushing for different kinds of solutions. How do you see that fitting into kind of your framework of infrastructure, like that kind of messy political side of all this? So I think the messy political side is kind of intrinsic to infrastructure, right? The, if these systems are fundamentally collective, you know, the idea that politics is what you get when you have people who are in a relationship with each other that they can't easily walk away from, and that is absolutely true for all of us who live in a given place, right? That we are in a relationship with each other that is mediated through the landscape and through these systems. I think this is, I mean, this is always the challenge, right? This is... Every infrastructural system encodes a certain set of values. It makes it easier to do things one way instead of a different way. Um, and those are nominally collective decisions. But, of course, they're not, you know, the we in the collective decision can be highly variable. And, of course, you know, living in the United States, in many cases that we was made by the sort of settlers, the European colonists, um, without really thinking about the we of the people who are already using the land, for example. So that is that is the history that is the entire history of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, where we are now, of course, is in a position to, to sort of state and articulate those values to try to have different infrastructure, right, to try to do things differently. And one of the things that I think is really important and that has really changed is this idea of where the energy that powers it comes from. You know, I used to think that the the best time, you know, the line about the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago and the next best time is now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for a long time, I was like, well, you know, the best time to have written a book like this was 20 years ago. And, you know, the next best time is now because <laughs> in the last 20 years, we really the impact of climate change has really started to hit home. Right. It's exponential growth. We are now, you know. Every, every passing year, the, the difference becomes greater. But the thing that's really changed in the last 20 years is that we now actually have broadly the renewable technologies, the renewable energy technology that we need to power these systems. And I don't think we've quite 
as a society, wrapped our brain around that, around the idea that, no, no, there's actually so much energy coming in from the sun that can be harnessed as both not just solar, but wind as geothermal, especially in California, as um, uh, hydroelectricity, that it is now possible to move away from fossil fuels in a way that wasn't possible 20 years ago. Mm. If I had written this book 20 years ago, that would have been in the future. And now it's in the present. So a big piece of this is going into these collective decision-making processes. What are we going to do and why? From the point of view of energy abundance, not energy scarcity, mm. right? To, to be like, oh, actually, we have the possibility to build a world where we actually have all of the energy that we need and we don't need to pay for it on a, you know, per joule basis because it's coming. You know, I grew up near Niagara Falls. And so, you, you know, the original electricity grids that were built out around Niagara Falls, they just looked at Niagara Falls and they're like, that is a lot of hydropower that we can just use. <laughs> And that's a simplistic, you know, point of view, right? It's like that, you know, it means negotiating, you know, New York and Ontario negotiate how much water they take out of Niagara Falls for electricity so that Niagara Falls still looks pretty for tourists, right? (laughs) These are all negotiated. But um, moving away from fossil fuels really opens up a new set of possibilities. Hmm. And it's a possibility that around energy is abundant. Um, And what, what can we do if energy is abundant, but also recognizing that the things we make all of these systems out of are finite, right? We're pulling things out of the ground. We're using them. We're dumping them somewhere else. Um, the the researcher Saul Griffith, I saw him give a talk a long time ago, and he said, you know, if we just replace everything that we use today with a, an electric version of that, the energy and the carbon that we'll use to make those material to make those new systems will, you know, essentially eat up our entire carbon budget. And I can kind of think of it this way. Mm. If we if we just replace every internal combustion engine car on the road, if we just junk it and replace it with um, an electric vehicle, right? Like, one, that is like, you know, the sort of junkyards that are beyond right. comprehension, right? If we, don't re- if we don't reuse those materials. But the other thing is if we just do it using the sort of conventional techniques, the all of the energy that goes into making those new systems will use a massive amount of carbon. Mm. But like places like California, by going hard into renewables and recognizing the actual reality of our planet, which is that we have unlimited energy arriving every moment, but we're, you know, we're a ball of rock and a bit of water <laughs> we and some air. only have so air, many, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah hanging tons of cobalt or whatever. Right, yeah. yeah. So, so basically making the decision that we, we never, anything that gets pulled out of the ground once then gets reused instead of being dropped back into the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we use our abundant renewable energy for, right, as well as giving us the energy to interact mm-hmm. in the world. So that's um, the thing that's really sort of changed. And that's the thing that I think can really reshape conversations about how, how do we, you know, what do we build, mm-hmm. what kind of systems will yeah. we build. It will never be easy, right? There will always be questions of trade-offs, but that really opens the doors to mitigating a lot of the harms of these systems that have been previously, oh, well, that's not economic. It's like, well, often that means it just takes too much energy to do, and we need to pay a lot of money for that energy. But once that is no longer true, that really changes the types of conversations we can have around what kind of systems do we really want, and how do we want them to work, and who's going to benefit, and what kind of harms might there be And what can we maybe do to mitigate those harms? 
we will talk more about that because I have I have some questions about how to actually like structure those processes. We have a few more um, infrastructural favorites coming in though as well. Uh, Virginia writes, I love the San Jose, Santa Clara Regional Wastewater Facility. The beauty of it is that all the best science is used to treat the water. Wastewater is screened and settled using mechanical processes. Then chemistry and biology is used to reduce the nitrogen and volume. What sinks are taken to landfill or biosolids are used to generate electricity. Communications are used to manage pumps and valves. I love how it uses all the STEM fields. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I'm loving this. Like, lo- you know, everyone's like, "Oh, sewage! Everyone hates sewage. No one wants to know about it." I'm, I'm, I'm. My heart is singing with the love for sewage plants. I know. Today. I also love Linda saying that all the tours of the wastewater facility fill up too quickly. Like, oh, you're yeah. there. It's like Taylor Swift tickets. You know? But yeah, just... <laughs> yeah. I went to, uh, I went to visit the one in Brooklyn, and that's exactly what my friend is like. You have to be there. We're like pushing the button, ready to go. That's so, so funny. Um, you know, the listener writes, "I've lived in the Bay Area." almost all my 66 years. I recently flew into SFO from the south and was struck by how the Dumbarton Bridge stood out as an unadorned fixture, just a continuation of the highway across the bay. The San Mateo Bridge also lacks the monumental presentation of her lovely sisters to the north, like the Golden Gate Bridge and Bay Bridge. Why are some projects imbued with a conscious aesthetic, whereas others come across as post-Soviet gray infrastructure? Is this just the random alignment of policy and, and public will I think it might be. Those things. I, you know, I feel like um, cable cable stayed bridges and um, cable bridges like the Golden Gate, which are typically you know deeper water, can be beautiful in a way that causeway style bridges. Mm. Um, they don't have their. Um, they're just you know they're supported on the um, on piles. That, and this is where I'm like I'm not a civil engineer, but they're. Um, I think they're. In, they don't. They lack that kind of soaring. Um, cables, but... Yeah, they I don't, don't think, need it, so we don't do it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think it has to be that way, though. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about the wonders, delights, and problems of infrastructure with Deb Chatra. Her new book is How Infrastructure Works Inside the Systems That Shape Our World. She's an engineering professor at Olin College of Engineering in Massachusetts. We want to hear from you. What are your favorite pieces of Bay Area infrastructure? What do you take for granted, but maybe you won't after you've heard Deb? You can give us a call. The number is 866 Forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the wonders, delights, problems of infrastructure with Deb Chatra. 
Her new book is How Infrastructure Works. She's an engineering professor at Olin College of Engineering in Massachusetts. Let's bring in another caller, uh, Noah in Richmond. Welcome to the show. Hello, thank you. Um, I have a quick question uh, for the guest who mentioned uh, looking at the cultural differences between, I believe, India and the United States and how infrastructure like replaced a lot of gendered labor that we that is now kind of invisible to us in the U.S. And I'm wondering um, now in the United States, is there any kind of uh, any sort of labor um, that she sees infrastructure being replaced by in the near future? Like what's the next frontier for what labor we get to make uh, kind of something we don't even have to think about? Thanks. So interesting. Thanks, Noah. Oh, that is a really fascinating right, question. Um, I mean, certainly the the infrastructural system that many of us have seen come out in our lifetimes is telecommunications, is mm-hmm. the Internet. And certainly the pandemic really kind of reinforced that idea of this is a whole new way in which we connect with the people around us. Um, and so I think of that less as replacing gendered labor and more or labor of sorts and more about giving us a new avenue for agency, right? A new way of interacting in the world, a new way of connecting with the people around us. So that's kind of the first piece. But the second piece, of course, is that all infrastructural systems require expertise and care and labor, right? If your Wi-Fi mm-hmm. goes down and you either fix it yourself or you have to figure out who to ask to fix it. So um, so it's, there's a little bit of, of a... As individuals, we get more, we can do different things. We can do more things um, rather than replacing, you know, our basic survival needs, for example. But then, of course, broadly, all new infrastructural systems are associated with care and maintenance and labor to Mm. keep them functioning. Mm. Um, Speaking of one of those big nodes, Ted on Discord writes, Great show. My favorite piece of Bay Area infrastructure I've personally seen is the AT&T home office. It's a nondescript building in downtown Oakland where all data in the East Bay flows through. I didn't know this. Uh, As a critical piece of the local data system, it has no windows below three stories and has very well-disguised bollards surrounding it, protecting it from damage. Inside is a long wall with every phone number in the East Bay, a beautiful array of rainbow wires, each one a person or home. Um, those those uh, internet infrastructural buildings are definitely some of the weirdest spaces, I think. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. like data centers. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, they're, you know, these are not systems that are designed for casual visitors. Inspection. And also, you can't really see the work that's being done there. In distinction with um, Chris, who writes in to say, here's an infrastructure piece we see every day, but few think about, except for me and Deb, the cargo cranes at the Port of Oakland. (laughs) The huge flow of everyday things we consume from China gets lifted off ships by these cranes and then brought to our homes. I got to operate one of those cranes (gasps) through an uncle who was a port engineer. Certainly unforgettable to run a machine that that large. Oh my goodness! Wow, I've been up in one of the one of the cranes as well, um, right. and they it, it's amazing because they're glass bottomed for those who don't know. So you kind of the operators are kind of looking down through their legs down onto the ship, like straight from from straight above. Right. It's really a wild um, experience up there, and of course the view is like nothing you've ever seen, and it's incredibly beautiful because you're right on the water, you're very high, 
It's amazing. amazing. Oh, that sounds fantastic. You know, I have to say, I have been I have been keeping a list of all of the amazing places that the listeners have been suggesting, <laughs> and so you know that one has now vaulted to the top of the list. But, um, but yeah, that's a uh, fun one. Yeah. Um, you know, let's talk a little bit about the sort of what you see in those containers, right? Because there's sort of the sublime of it, right? There's the there's uh, the way we feel about seeing those things move and what they they represent. But there's also right the standards that kind of allow that system to work as a global system. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um I mean, as you know, Alexis, um, I'm 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 laughing at being asked because um, I know that Alexis has deep expertise in <laughs> containers as well. The thing for me, the thing that I think is most interesting about them is that because containers cause essentially a frictionless, a seamless um, connection between marine transportation and land transportation. Right, the idea that you just pick them up off the container and you put them onto a truck or you you put the container onto a train. That's really dropped the cost of um, transporting goods, Mm -hmm. like, through the floor, to the point where now the cost of transporting goods is is typically, like, pretty much negligible in the cost of the object. And this is the thing, this is why so much of our, you know, the things we touch every day come from far away rather than being manufactured within 100, you know, 100 miles of where we live, for example. And that's really transformed our culture, right? Transformed where things get made, where we buy things from, how things get moved around. Um, And so one of the things that makes it possible is this idea of, of standardization, that containers are themselves, you know, it's a box, you know, it has a, a set of parameters. It's a certain size, it has a certain weight, it has standard connections, and it doesn't matter where in the world you are, the containers work the same way. And this is true for lots of things. This is true for civil aviation. Um, this is true for um, standards broadly, right, for how do we make things. And this sort of make it sort of hides the fact that much of what we interact with every day is far too complex for a single person to to manage, right? These mm. systems are huge, but the fact that they're standards means that they can work the same way wherever you are. But that's, you know, I'm looking at a, this plastic pen on my desk, and, and it's just, just about as true that no one human has all of the knowledge they need to make something as simple as, and inexpensive as a pen. Um, and that was so, so this, I, you, you, no. I think you used the point in the book that there are people who could, you know, we've actually had Peggy Ornstein on the show who tried to like make a sweater from, you know, the, the um, right. uh, from, you know, um, sheep onward. And right. you made the point that even just a single plastic button on a sweater that you were, you know, if you're in the middle of nowhere raising these sheep, like no one could make that button alone. Like it is just no one has all the knowledge. Right, like it takes chemical. I mean, it takes. Think about all the people who got the um, the natural gas that went into, or the oil that went into the plastic. All of the sort of chemical engineering, all of the sort of industrial processing to injection mold it. Right, like you can certainly make a button out of many materials, right? As humans have for for centuries, but to make a plastic button requires all of the. Um, sort of all of the sort of global, not just the knowledge of how to make it, but all of the ways to work together. Mm. And so, you know, one of the things that I I like to say is, you know, there's this idea that we're facing global problems. And we actually have a proof of concept that we can work together at global scale 
in complex ways, right? Because every shipping container, every button, right, mm. every time you get on a plane to fly somewhere is the proof of concept that we are capable of working at mm. all scales up to and including the planetary scale. Um, and then it's just a question of how how do we do that? How do we harness that? How do we do it together? But it's certainly yeah. possible. Yeah. Let's bring in John, who has a, a question around this. Um, John in... Sorry, John. I'm trying to select you, and I can't for some reason. Um, I will... Uh, we'll come to John in just a second. Um, the... the Oh, there we go. We got John now. Um, John, welcome uh, to the show. Yeah, hi. Um, thanks for having me. I uh, I think something that a lot of us, you know, don't think about is useful lives. And, um, you know, it's a, kind of an exciting time. I know our freeways are coming up to the end of their useful life. There's really exciting proposals about, like, tearing down or reimagining 980 through the middle of downtown Oakland. Um, but at the same time, like, we haven't built a lot of new power plants and they're mm -hmm. close to decommissioning Diablo Canyon, but we're also moving to an electric vehicle future and trying mm -hmm. to electrify, you know, heating and stuff like that with heat pumps. Um, and so I just, it, it takes so long and it's so expensive to build new infrastructure in California. You know, I, I'm curious to get um, your guest take on like, how have they done that on the East coast? What things work? Like, how are we going to get through this? Because there's so much stuff yeah. that needs to get built, rebuilt. Um, totally. No, John, I, this is it, John. Thank you for bringing this up. Cause Deb, I think this was like the thing that, that, uh, that I think is hardest ab about your book because it does, it gives us all this like tools and ways of seeing the world and thinking about infrastructure. And it's very, it's like, it's like very inspiring. And then, you know, doing this show every day and John clearly is living in the, the same world that I am. We can't build anything. We can't do anything. <laughs> right. And and when we do, like, say, try to do high-speed rail through some, it's like costs so much. We try and build a sub, you know, one subway stop. It costs so much money. And I don't, like, there seemed to be, the answer in the old days was ignore all public opposition, ram it through, and, like, then it existed, and then you... It, but that had all these harms, and most marginalized people got hurt the most. I mean, it, it, very, very uh, bad solution. But now we have a, a case where we can't build anything as opposed to building something, and um, I don't know what the answer to that is. So, And I, and I think that's... Sorry, John, it's a little bit an extension of your question, but I think Jeb's answer will get at it. Yeah, I mean, John, this this is the question, right? Which is that if we can kind of see the kinds of things we want to do, but we are figuring out what are the kind of structures that enable us to do these things. And I, I mean, I... I mean, I absolutely do not have an answer to this question. One of the things I will absolutely say is that it's never going to be a one-size-fits-all solution. It's always going to be a situated solution. It's always going to be locally specific to what resources are present, what is the sort of local transportation system, what is, you know, what are the energy sources, how do we do it? There are a couple of things that I would say are useful heuristics, right? So one is... It's, it's worth thinking about us as the early days of these new systems. And so it's probably not a great idea to be like, we're going to build giant monumental megastructures. We, we, we don't know for sure how we want things to work into mm -hmm. the future. So building in a way that is, um, you know, more adaptable or flexible or small scale or decentralized just seems like a solid sort of engineering 
you know, um, approach, but also makes it possible to build things that are appropriate for communities, right? That's mm. certainly a thing that I think about as a heuristic. Um, I already talked about this idea of um, mitigating harms, right? Basically, historically, infrastructure has been either we, you know, there's uneven benefits and uneven harms. And so it's not that one group benefits necessarily and another group is harmed. It's that there's a set of benefits and there's a set of harms. And historically, it's been like, who can we slough the harms off mm-hmm. onto? And the nature of networks that move resources to where we are is they're also really good at taking the harms away to other people. Um, so another heuristic is thinking about, well, if we're going to build something new, how do we mitigate the harms instead of displacing them? Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the kinds yeah. of things that, you know, that sort of come to, that sort of immediately come into, like, how do we start thinking about this? But, you know, John, I agree with you. Like, I wish, I wish, you know, I would love to be able to wave a magic wand and be like, we can just do it. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, the hardest thing is building the new world while we're still living in the current one. Well, and I think, you know, one thing that people see here, too, is that, um, like, the, in the U.S., if you do, like, per-mile calculations for building something, it's just gotten completely out of whack with many other countries. Yeah. And it's kind of, you know, there's a lot of blame to go around for why that is. Yeah. Um, Tony, uh, over on our, on our Discord community, had this question, which I, I kind of gets to this. They're trying to, there's some people who are trying to build, essentially, a new city in Solano County. So Tony asks... I wonder if Professor Chatra has insights on the various infrastructure, water, sewer, electricity, internet, gas, roads, government structures that goes into building a new city and the usual time frame from start to finish. Is that even a thing to build a city from scratch or do cities uh, have to evolve from a, a smaller town? Wow. You know, I mean, I certainly know there are planned communities and I have, I, I'm going to say I do not, cannot say with any, you know, deep understanding like what it would take to build. And I suspect it would depend a lot on the size. It depends a lot on what you're trying to do. But that is fascinating. I know. To think about. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're trying. They're definitely yeah. trying. Um, yeah. Let we've got some more uh, faves. Um, I have to. I have to say this one. It's like I'm contractually obli- obligated. <laughs> a listener writes Sutro Tower for their favorite piece of, of infrastructure. Course. It's just a radio tower. It's actually a television tower for KQED, but it's so much more for San Franciscans. It defines the skyline, features in so many photos of the city peaking over clouds, and used to be the city's tallest structure. It's a meeting spot, a hiking spot, and a point of reference for anyone who lives there. I think most don't think about its purpose. I've also visited Sutro Tower, like gone inside. Um, it uh, it was a foggy day, and it was it felt um, terrifying. Actually, there were guys going up into onto the tower, and they were just ascending into the fog, <laughs> like Whoa. some industrial heaven. You know, you could see them. <laughs> they were in these like buckets, just like, and then they would be gone. And then inside, it of course is like heavily fortified. It's like Cold War era. Uh, kind of, you know, cement walls. It's so amazing. Have you been in one of those places, like a big tower like that? Uh, well, I grew up uh, in the shadow of the CN Tower, and um, which is a communication, again, you know, a communications tower that yeah. um, is also sort of a beloved, um, uh, you know, really makes the skyline distinct. But yeah, the Sutra Tower, um, I, you know, I know, I have so many friends who love it. I've seen so many photos um, I'm so envious of you for having gone inside, but that really, you know, that the, you know, this is these are, these are systems. They're not just systems, right? They're like part of our landscape, our mental landscape, our physical landscape, our homes, right? So I'm not at all surprised um, at how beloved many of these are. Yeah, 
Um, Rebecca writes, I find the Guadalupe Freeway, Highway 87 in San Jose, an impressive, well-planned piece of infrastructure. The ride starts in South San Jose, then runs through a pass in Communications Hill, intersects 280, and runs parallel to the border of downtown San Jose, where you get an appreciation of the views of the commercial buildings of Silicon Valley, and almost as a welcome, you can immediately exit uh, onto Santa Clara. Michael writes, I just learned that the San Mateo Bridge, originally built in 1929, was the longest bridge in the U.S., still the longest in California, and an original section still exists in the west side. It was such a big Ooh. deal that Coolidge came out for the grand opening <laughs> ceremony. Uh, your guest, uh, Laura writes, your guest just mentioned gravity delivered water. I grew up climbing a water tank in San Carlos. In the mid-2000s, I led a walking group, and the people were amazed seeing all the water tanks through the Redwood City Hills. Um, yeah. Do you want to give your last uh, fave before we get to our last couple comments? Any infrastructural faves you want to make sure we know about? Oh, this list is so great that I, I feel like the next time I come to California, I'm going to be like running around and looking at all of these amazing suggestions. Um, what about you? What about in where you live, though? Do you want to give us one of those in case we're ever out in Boston? Oh, you know, I um, so my favorite spot in Boston is a place called Castle Island, which, of course, is not an island, does not have a castle on it. It actually <laughs> has a pre-revolutionary star fort, um, but it's right on a channel leading out from Boston Harbor. Um, it's directly across um, the channel from the um, from Logan Airport, so it's under a flight path. It's right next to the container port, mm. um, and it's um, you can actually see the the big wastewater treatment plant um, in the for the Boston area, Deer, Deer Island, across the harbor. The harbor is, as one of your listeners suggested, much cleaner than it was 50 years ago because of mm-hmm. all of the sort of upgrades on these systems. Um, and there's a beach, and there's like a small place that sells like French fries and oh hot dogs. man, Castle and Island, let's go! It's like it's my place, right? <laughs> it's like it's all this infrastructure plus beach plus French fries, I right? Love it. That's uh, yeah, so good. Uh, last comment: A listener writes, "I'm a civil engineer. When my kids were small and asked what I did, I'd say I care when you flush. <laughs> They'd roll their eyes, but it's so important. Uh, and the end. I'm listening to your program while working on the infrastructure, preparing aerial fiber optic cables for splicing from a bucket truck. Yes. The Oracle Building in the background. Oh man, that's so great. He sent us a pic too. Hopefully, we can post that. Oh, this is so wonderful. Uh, we have been talking about the wonders, delights, and problems of infrastructure with Deb Chatra. Her new book is How." infrastructure works. Thank you so much for joining us, Deb. A genuine pleasure, Alexis. So great. She's an engineering professor at Olin College in Massachusetts. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, Tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. 
So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.